seems most fitting that I'd say turn to Job this morning, but um, uh, turn to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Um, yeah, I stepped out in my garage and missed a step, hit a slick carpet, and fractured or broke uh, a bone in my foot, and so I'll find out tomorrow if that's surgery or a cast. Uh, I'm really praying just for straight cast. Just because surgery is just one more thing, right? Um, But it is good to be able to celebrate the resurrection of Christ today. It is good to be with uh, the saints, and it is good to be reminded of the love and the passionate pursuit of Christ for us. And so John chapter 20 this morning, I want us to drive our attention toward uh, really the loveliness of Christ. I, I remember being single and... Um, I didn't get married or was married when I was 29, uh, about 10 days or so before I I turned 30. I remember early in my 20s being pretty content to be single and um, really content if I would always be that way. And then the Lord brought a a young couple into my life. They, um, he was an assistant pastor of the church, Lucas and Liesl Counterman. He pastors out in Utah right now. And they just got to be dear friends. And uh, one of the things they did is they just invited me into their life and uh, were very sweet. They were probably the first experience I had of people who love Jesus and who love me, and so they're going to confront me and speak truth to my life, and they really want to help me grow and change, and it was a huge blessing. But watching them interact, and and they just did life in front of me, um, really began, I saw their marriage, and I said, you know, I want to be married. If I could be married like that, I want to be married. And I, and you know, I saw them fight. I saw them argue, but it just was real, and there was a loveliness to it that made me long for that. And I want you to begin thinking this morning about the loveliness of Christ. Where does our passion, our heart, our zeal for Christ come from? And it really begins with having a love for Christ and seeing his loveliness. And so the contrary to that, the the, the flip side of that, is our love for Jesus, frankly, begins to wane or grow dim. Uh, A word that we could use is becomes apathetic. Uh, when we fail to see his loveliness any longer. And what happens is very slowly things encroach into our hearts and in our lives that, that are oftentimes good things, but we can to love them more. And the love of Christ grows cold and grows dim. And so this morning, I thought it's a wonderful time, Easter Sunday, to be reminded of the loveliness of the resurrected Christ. And so if you have your Bibles, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 29, I want to read those this morning. Um, and, and then we'll get into the Word. This is, this is what happens. This is Easter Sunday night. Let's just set the stage, right? Easter Sunday night. Uh, so it'd be like this evening, about 2,000 years ago or so. Christ resurrected that morning. He appeared to some women. He appeared sometime during the day to Peter. Um, we're not exactly sure when. Uh, you know, Peter may have gone out for a walk, a stroll in the afternoon and uh, come back. But there was some appearance to Peter. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that. But now this is the time he's going to appear to the rest of the disciples. All of them are there except for Judas, who's already committed suicide, and Thomas, who for some reason isn't here. And so this is the appearance, upper room, Easter Sunday night. This is what the Word says in the Gospel of John. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and Place my finger into the mark of the nails. Place my hand into his side. I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Why are you here uh, this morning, uh, Easter morning? Uh, Wouldn't you rather be somewhere else? 
my wife and I, we were at um, her oncologist a week or so ago, and uh, he asked me, do we have many CEO Christians in our church? And I said, well, we've got a lot of small business owners. And, um, and he said, no, 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 CEO, Christmas and Easter only. And, and praise God, we don't, really. And, and frankly, if you're here visiting with us this morning for Easter, we're glad to have you. Um, but what he was referencing was a mindset that I go to church because it's a particular day, right? It's an event, and that's, that's why I'm there. Are you here out of obligation? Well, this is where you're expected to be. Are you here out of joy? Are you here because you're here with family? Are you here because you want to hear about Jesus on this morning? I knew one pastor for a long time. He would never tell his church if he was going to be gone away out of fear that the folks wouldn't show up because they, he wouldn't be there to keep them accountable. Do you remember two years ago on this day? We weren't even able to gather. And it felt like such a loss. Do you remember that? It was such a strange Easter, trying to worship at home, not with friends and, and frankly, family together. We longed for the time when we could be back together. We mourned over things like canceled services. And unfortunately, I'm afraid in Western Christianity and American Christianity, since that time has begun to pass, now I think lots of times church and service and ministry has begun to be met with a sigh and, and the common uh, teenage euphemism, a meh, right? Take it or leave it. And I think one of the biggest dangers that Christians face is apathy. And I think apathy can take lots and lots of forms. I think it can be a meh kind of attitude to, to worship. I think it can be a sigh, a, a rolling of the eyes over another expectation to be with others. But I think it can also take other forms. I, could take, I think it can take forms that when you've seen explosive ministry or you've seen wonderful things happen, and then you have to return to the mundane of life, and it feels mundane, and it feels pointless, and we can get apathetic about it. Throughout the Bible, believers are warned about this. And in particular, in the book of Hebrews, we're warned a number of times about this, about the deceitfulness of sin in Hebrews 3. Challenge one another because there's a lie to it that we can really be okay when maybe we're not spiritually. We're told to provoke one another, push one another, goad one another toward love and good works by being together. We're told to seize our salvation seriously. In Revelation, apathy is one of the reasons that God actually snuffs out the candle of one of the churches, and it's called lukewarmness. So what happens if ministry feels mundane? What if happens if church and time with other believers just feels meh? What happens if service seems too sacrificial? What happens if prioritizing Christ seems too costly? Well, can I just be honest with you? I think it's terrifying. As a pastor, I'm not, I'm not above apathy. I feel apathy encroach on my own heart and my own life. And it scares me senseless. Let me cast it into you in a different way. What if it was in our home? And you can just think of my home. What if, what, if, what if in Steve's home, what if in my marriage, if suddenly eating together as a family ceased to be a priority? It just loses its appeal because sometimes the conversation seems dull or there's arguments or... Uh, you have teenagers who don't want to tell you about their day or parents who are tired and snippy with people. And so what if time together as a family eating together just loses its appeal? What if planning a family vacation? What if, what if I looked at planning a vacation and I said, that just takes too much time. It's too much of a chore. I got to check Expedia and Priceline and Airbnb and they overcharge. It's just too much work to go into that. What if serving each other in our home felt more like an interference, an annoyance, what? You expect me to go get that, or I have to do dishes again, or I need to take out the garbage, or vacuum, or wash the car, or change the oil? Come on, can't somebody else do that? What would happen in our home? What would happen in my marriage? I think it's really obvious. The home would crumble. The relationships would die, wouldn't they? There's no way around it. At its core, apathy kills. What brings it, though? Where does apathy come from? Well, I think central to it is it's a loss of first love. Something pushes out our love of Christ. I remember the first time my wife and I had a serious argument after we were married. Um, it was one of those arguments, really ugly little scene. And I remember, I, I do remember this, storming out of her bedroom saying, I will not sleep in the same bed with a woman who doesn't respect me. Yeah, pray for my wife. Um, 
Yeah, what a loser, right? Like, you've got to be kidding me. So it's with great shame that I say that. But it was only weeks after we'd been married. And I remember laying on the sofa and falling asleep that night into a sweet, restful, vengeful sleep, right? And waking up in the morning and just feeling still so justified in my anger. And then terror set in. Because it had only been weeks before that I'd walked down a, or saw her walk down an aisle and been amazed and promised loving her like Jesus. And here I was weeks later, resentful and angry and self-righteous. What had happened? Well, pretty easily, I had loved me more than I loved her. I mean, if you're going to put it on a core level, I was loving something else other than my wife. And so what pushes out our love for Christ? That's where apathy happens. What we need most desperately is a renewed love for Jesus. And there's actually no better place to turn than Easter Sunday night 2,000 years ago. And so it's actually a kind gift for us today. And so I want you to know what I have prayed throughout this week. God, this is impossible for me to do. So your spirit needs to do this. Would you show the loveliness of Jesus from this text this morning? That hearts would be full with a vision and a renewed love and affection for Christ. And so Resurrection Sunday is a gift that proclaims the loveliness of Christ over everything. And my heart needs that this morning. And so we actually can break the text down in a couple of ways. Uh, we can do it with uh, a comfort... Well, let me, let me show you the breakdown. So the first section, verses 19 through about the first half of verse 21, really bad verse break there. Um, but that's a comforting love for Christ. And it really would kind of be asking, answering the question, what do we do in the pain of life? Because pain of life can distract us from love, listen now, and can bring apathy. How easy do you think it is for me with a broke toe to put the focus all on me and my home? In the midst of pain and suffering, I was just talking to Pete this morning about this, it's easy for us to focus on ourselves, but Jesus doesn't, right? We, we should be looking out. But in the midst of pain, it's easy for it to become about us. And I tell you what will happen. Apathy will happen. Guaranteed, right? And so we'll see a comforting love. Then secondarily, we'll see a missional love. And it really kind of answers the question, what is, what's my purpose? Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? Purposeless people are always apathetic, right? There's no ambition. Meh, whatever. You know, whatever happens, happens. And so we need to be reminded of the missional love. It's actually kind when Jesus puts us on mission. So we want to be reminded of that. And then lastly, poor Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas. He's actually one of the most courageous of the disciples. He gets a bad rap. He's the guy when Jesus said, we're going to Jerusalem. All the disciples say, no, 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 no. They want to kill you there. And Thomas goes, let's go die with him. And so he gets a bad rap. Well, what about Thomas? Thomas is actually here for you and I. 2,000 years later, and we'll look at that in a moment. So that's how we can break the text down. It'll be real simple. We'll look through this, comforting love, missional love, and then finally, blessing love. So let's focus there first on blessing love. Again, verses 19 through 21a. On the evening of that day, Easter Sunday night, first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews. They didn't flee Jerusalem. They knew they were supposed to stay in Jerusalem, but they locked the doors. They're like the locked doors are somebody going to stop the, the Romans or the Sanhedrin with the army, but they locked the doors. They're scared to death. They're afraid they're going to die. Jesus came and stood among them. Um, it's a miracle moment. Yes, he walks through the door and through the walls. And he says to them, peace be with you. That's the word shalom. Uh, and so it's this wonderful term throughout the Bible that means God's peace be upon you. It means that you're at peace with God and I'm at peace with you. Shalom. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. Now, if you were to compare this passage, we don't have time to go to all these this morning. Um, please feel free to study these on your own. Don't, don't just take it from my word. But if you were to go Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you would discover that the, Jews, the disciples initially think he's a ghost. And that's why there's so much fear and trepidation here. Uh, it, you know, he walks through a wall. <laughs> um, you know, so he's dead. What's going on? This is, but despite the fact the women had seen Jesus that morning and told them. They didn't buy it. They didn't believe it. They just think they're emotional. And so Jesus is coming to them in a unique moment. And so this first one is a comforting love. And it's fascinating. Uh, Darren, when, lots of times when he preaches, preaches through the Gospel of John. Uh, and so he hasn't gotten to these texts. So there's no way for you to know that. And I'm stealing his, his sermon from like a couple years away from now. Um, it's not fair. But it's fascinating because when you study this, Jesus actually prepared them for this exact moment. Not just his death, not just his resurrection, but this exact meeting with them in the upper room. And so the first way we can think about this is the deep sorrow that is happening. 
And Jesus is going to describe the sorrow the disciples are going to be experiencing on Easter Sunday in two ways. And the first way is he's going to describe it like the sorrow of an orphan. And the second way would be in the sorrow of a woman in labor. And so he was telling, this is how you're going to be feeling. And so we come to this first Easter Sunday night, and there's been 19 chapters of John. Judas is in here. He's already committed suicide. Thomas is not here. And yet Jesus knows that they were going to need to be prepared for this. And so if you were to actually go back to John 14, Jesus, prepping them for this moment, said this, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Now, I, I, could, I could take 10 minutes to prove to you that this is the moment. Because there's arguments. Is he talking about his return uh, that we all anticipate? Uh, is, is he talking about his return plus this? Is he talking about his ascension? When exactly is he talking about the Holy Spirit here? But when, if you look at the context clues of John chapter 14, you discover this is the moment. Jesus knew they were going to be in such travail right now, he wanted to prepare them for it. And he uses this interesting phrase that they will be sorrowing like an orphan. He's talking about the grief that a child would feel at the loss of a parent. Now, this past Tuesday was the one-year anniversary of the loss of my dad when I was studying this. Losing a parent, no matter your age, can just affect you in profound ways. But it's nothing really, to be honest with you, compared to someone who's grown up as an orphan. The impact of losing a parent or not having a parent in your life is profound, particularly even in the United States where they've done studies. If you have a child for example, that ages out of the foster care system. What that means is, is they hit 18 and they've never been adopted. And so they enter the world as an orphan. They spend a serious amount of time in their life as an orphan. Let me just read to you some of the statistical impact on them. Over 46% of them will be homeless at some point before they're 26. That's astounding. Almost half of the children who age out of the foster care system will end up homeless at some point. 71% will make less than $25,000 a year. That's less than half of poverty level, by the way. That means two, over two-thirds of children who are orphans will spend their life impoverished. 70% of girls who age out of the foster care system will be pregnant before they're 21. 50% of all children who age out of the foster care system, half of them will struggle with substance abuse at some point in addiction. Only 4% of them will obtain a college degree before 26. And a quarter of them, 25%, will never graduate high school or get a GED. Scientists have studied the impact when you lose a parent at a young age. It actually changes you biologically. It actually rewires your brain. They've begun to tie certain cancers, listen to this, to stress, and particularly to the stress of losing or not having a parent. In other words, your lifespan is shorter. These are all biological, mental, psychological ways, life ways that losing or not having a parent will affect you. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. They felt like orphans when Jesus died. They felt the acute loss of someone who they could trust and depend upon. Some time ago this past year, we were studying what does it look like or feel like when you lose a dad in a home, a good dad in a home. And it affects you in so many profound ways. There's the loss of leadership, of wisdom, of safety, of care, of direction. Think about the disciples with Jesus here. They've lost the source of power. They've lost the source of leadership. Jesus is the one, but even Thursday, he's telling them, hey, you guys go get the meal you guys get the room. Now it's gone, and the guy that they thought might be the next leader, he's the guy that's cursing in the, in the courtyard saying, I don't even know him. And one of their own, and none of them knew it was Judas, they get word that he's hung himself, and he's died because he sold Jesus out. They don't have anyone to ask answers of. They we're told early in the Gospel of John, John chapter 2, that Jesus made a reference to uh, tear down this temple and I'll build it again in three days. And they all thought he was talking about the physical temple. John chapter 2 tells us the disciples didn't even know Jesus was talking about his resurrection until after he resurrected. In other words, all these warnings, you know, we read the Gospel and we're like, I mean, how did they not expect this? 
but they are full of grief and sorrow and fear. They did not expect the resurrection in the way that we think that they should. They've lost connection with the one that they trust, the one that they depend upon, the one they need to lead, and the one that they felt safest with. There is a deep and profound sorrow. This is as close to we, as we get to a wake for Jesus in this moment. But it's not just a deep sorrow, it's a temporary deep sorrow. And he described it as labor pains in John 16. Again, referencing this moment. <clears throat> he had said, I'm going to be gone a little while, then I'll be back. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. What he means by that is the rejoicing at having killed the Son of God. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice. No one will take your joy from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, I truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus is saying this to them to describe the intensity of the pain. If, if describing them as orphans was describing the impact, like, like an asteroid smashing the earth impact of the pain of the loss of Jesus, this is describing just the intense anguish of it. Don't miss the fact that he links it to physical, even. There can be griefs in us that just seem to ravage our body even physically. Loss of sleep weariness, fatigue, biological impact, stress-related. You can live longer without food than you can without sleep. I'm sure you've experienced sorrow where you've lost sleep. Uh, We've been studying through the book of Job, and Job with his reddened face from crying and the bags under his eyes, the nightmares at night. Jesus is saying this to them because when the pain is that intense, in these moments, listen, it feels like it will never end. A woman in the middle of labor pains. Probably unwise to look at her and say, it'll be over soon. Those are not good words of comfort, right? Um, Even if it's true, the intensity of pain, the depth of the agony makes it feel like it's never going to end. And then just to be honest, there's great fear that happens in this kind of pain. What if the baby doesn't make it? What if the mother doesn't make it? When will this end? Can I do it? Uh, my wife having given birth three times, I, I, they must train all obstetric nurses to say the same thing because I hear it, heard it every birth, you can do it. Why do they say that? Because in the midst of that pain, there's the fear, can I do this? There is deep doubt that can encroach in. Can I make it through this? Anybody that's experienced deep grief and deep sorrow knows that you're just trying to put one foot in front of the other, but you're asking, can I put the next foot in front of the other tomorrow. Jesus is preparing them for these three days. That's stunning to me. I mean, Jesus could have looked at them and said, guys, guys, you're not going to die. It's going to be okay. I'm showing up Sunday night. But he doesn't belittle their sorrow. He doesn't diminish their agony. He doesn't dismiss their pain. He speaks into it. Jesus speaks into it because in the intensity of temporary sorrow, there is great risk. All their courage is gone, and it's been replaced with fear. All their power is gone, and it's been replaced with weakness. All their purpose is gone, and it's been replaced with confusion. Their last memories of Jesus are of not even being faithful friends to him. And so it's into this moment that Jesus shows up with comforting love. And so Jesus doesn't just prepare them for this. He fulfills it. He fulfills his promise to them. He says that their promise will be turned to joy. Now, the door is locked because they're afraid of the Jews coming and arresting them. But it serves to showcase his power to them and his pursuit of them. I love the fact that he doesn't even show up and knock. Uh, That would have been like a modern-day skit, right? Like, who's there? Jesus. He doesn't bother with that. He just comes barging right in. I'm so grateful that Jesus has just barged right into my soul. He didn't wait. He just came right after me. He knows and meets us in the midst of our need. 
He shows up and not even a locked door can keep him from comforting his children, his friends and his disciples. He says shalom to them. And it's the completion of his last cry on the cross, which was it is finished. He died paying the penalty for their sin. That was the cross. It is finished. Shalom means peace has now arrived. Because of his death on the cross for their sin, and frankly for our sins, because on the cross Jesus experienced the wrath of God for us, the wrath we deserved, and that's what makes us at peace with him and with others. And so he says, peace to them. In John 14, if you were to go back to that passage about orphans in verse 27, he said that he was going to give them peace, so don't let their hearts be troubled or be afraid. He said it this way in John 16, the other passage about labor pains. He said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This shalom, when Jesus looks at them and he says, peace be with you, he says it twice, he says it again later when he comes, he's fulfilling what he promised to them. He's saying that his resurrection proves his love for them. His resurrection proves his power to them. His resurrection brings forgiveness and grace and mercy for all their floundering and their pain. You know, when God talks to the lost people in Romans chapter 2, it says that his loving kindness, his grace, is intended to bring people to repentance. Lots of times people think, well, God hasn't really punished me. Where's all the suffering? I'm told that hell's supposed to be coming, but hey, life is not great or hasn't been always been the best, but it's not that bad. We may have broken some toes, but hey, that's life. And it's easy for people to misinterpret the patience and loving kindness of God. It should drive you to Him. As believers, is it possible that sometimes we take the comforting love for God for granted? Now, I'm one of those guys when I was in college and they had a demerit system, I operated on the I've got 150 demerits to spend kind of mentality, right? Better to ask forgiveness than permission. You know, to my shame, sometimes that creeps into my spiritual life. God's given grace. And I find a heart that can grow so easily cold and apathetic. Because where's the consequence? God is so kind in the midst of our floundering, in the midst of our stuckness, even if it's caused by sorrow or grief for the disciples to come and remind us of peace. Before anybody will get on mission and stay on mission, they must have hearts full of having been loved by God so that they will love Him in return. Missional people are loved and loving people. Now let me just put it this way. What if Jesus just showed up and looked at them and said, guys, get on mission, and never addressed the deep anguish they had experienced? How motivated are you if someone treats you that way? I'm not at all. A wise mentor once told me, people will never listen to you until they know how much you love them. Now, that's a terrifying thing pastorally because I'm going to fail you, and I have failed you. I'm going to sin against you, and I will sin against you. I'm broken and I'm weak, and lots of times, even if I would want to love you, I don't love you well or love you right. And so I actually pray lots of times that God would let you hear his word in spite of me. But that's never how Jesus treats us, is it? His love is perfect and kind and pursuing and comforting. And so Jesus speaks into us Resurrection Sunday that it's a gift that proclaims the loveliness of Christ over all things because he is not annoyed or irritated. He's comforting and he speaks love to the sorrowing. But it's not just a comforting love, there's a missional love. We can see this in verses 21 through 23. This is a very interesting set of verses, and it's one of those I almost wish we were exposition preacher. We could hear Darren preach a series on this, and, and so I hope he won't be discouraged when he gets this text to do this because there's so much packed in here. But verse 21, and I'm going to start at the second half when Jesus starts speaking now a mission to them. He says this, As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. For almost three years, Jesus has given these disciples a purpose in their life, 
of following and serving him. Remember, he said, drop the nets and follow me. Matthew, leave the tax collecting table and follow me. Uh, He calls all the disciples, stop what you're doing, follow me. Let the dead bury the dead, follow me. Um, uh, Foxes have holes and birds have nests. I don't have anywhere to lay my head. Follow me. Take up your cross and follow me. So for three, roughly three years, he's been calling them to follow him. They thought they were on the cutting edge of a global rescue mission. They thought they were following the Messiah who's going to overthrow the Romans, kick out the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and finally instill holiness and righteousness in the land. And then he dies. And he dies a shameful death, hanging naked on a cross, abandoned by his friends, with the same crowd that was shouting Hosanna just a week ago, now yelling crucify him in less than five days. They're afraid. They're hiding behind locked doors. They're afraid to even leave the city. They're unsure of what to do. Now, notice the stunning difference here between this moment with the disciples and what they were like back in Luke when they were on mission and Jesus was alive. In 72 return, Jesus had different groups, right? So he had the three closest, then he had the 12, then he he had 72. It went on from there. 72 returned with joy. Jesus sent them out two by two. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, that's a pretty cool thing. Like, let's just be honest. What if if Jesus is here and he said, I'm going to send you guys out. Uh, I'm going to send a hundred of you folks out and you can heal the sick and you can cast out demons. Now, I don't know about you, my my first stop, um, after we say, you know, Toby healed, right? Like, like after that, because I want to be able to move, is I'm getting in my car, and I'm doing like 90 miles an hour down to, down to Richland Children's Hospital. And I'm just going through, man. I'm, you go somewhere else. I got the children's wing, right? And then after that, I'm going over to Baptist, and I'm going to go find some folks that are struggling with some mental illness, and I'm going to be speaking life and health into them. And then, if there's anybody, I'm going to be, anybody know anybody demon-possessed? Let me go find some folks that, that are struggling, maybe they demon-possession. I don't know what you got going on. And I'm just casting demons. How cool would that be? You don't seem excited about that at all. Like that, to me, that's like legit. I'm like, that is some amazing stuff, right? Lord, even the demons are subject to a certain name. I get it. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus, you know what Jesus says to that is? Meh. Which you're like, what? Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I mean, boom. So if I could walk into the children's wing of Baptist Hospital, or drive to St. Jude's and just walk into a room and pray and watch God heal this child of a malignant brain tumor? That what is more amazing of a miracle, what is more a sign of the glorious power and love and majesty of God, is that I belong to Him. Sometimes when we're on mission, we forget what the greatest thing is. It's the sheer fact that we're on mission. (laughs) Not what we have to see happening or what we don't see happening, but the fact that Jesus has rescued us and chose us, the fact that my name is Lazarus and I was in the tomb is of greater rejoicing than anything else. And so it's amazing that the disciples are so full of joy here. They return with joy. They're filled with joy, but now their hearts are gripped by grief. Why? Because they have no power, because all power left with Jesus. But they also have no purpose, because all purpose went into the tomb. They have no plan, because wisdom went to the cross. They have no mission anymore. Why? Because their joy was was in what they saw happen, instead of in their position in Jesus. I'm going to say that again. Their joy was sourced more in what they could see than in who they were in Christ. And Jesus needed to remind them of that. Jesus is pointing them to what might seem mundane. Rejoice that you've been saved by me. Now it is shocking to me that great ministry experience can seem to trump true joy of being in Christ. But if happy ministry experience, if that experience can supersede, can trump, can overwhelm, and could produce in me a greater joy than being in Jesus... Are there other things that could seem 
to supersede my joy in Christ? What happens when we think immediate experiences are what life is about? What happens if we mistake the temporary delights of this world with lasting joy? What is our life without Christ? What is your life without Christ? Now, it may feel very full with family and hobbies and delights and work. But if you remember, way back as a church we studied through Ecclesiastes, he hit it right on the button. All of this will go away like a vapor, like a breeze, like when I was a kid with my friends at the bus stop in the winter, pretending we were smoking, breathing, and the air just goes away, and it's gone. All of these temporary delights, no matter how intense and wonderful they are, will be gone. Jesus has called the disciples, and frankly, he's called you and I to something far better and something more. And he shows up to remind them of that reality. What thing, what event, what person, what pleasure have you found is deeper, richer, and more valuable than Jesus? Is that even possible? And so Jesus points them with a missional love. One of the things I've discovered in counseling and discipleship is lots of times you have to have hope when the disciple has no hope. You have to have faith to believe what God can do because lots of times they can't see the forest for the trees. Now, I'm, I'm saying this they. I say this truthfully, experientially myself. I, I need people to help me see the bigger picture of what Jesus is doing because it's easy to get everything crowded out around me and it's easy to forget the mission that God has actually put us on. And so let me just walk you through it. It's fascinating. Uh, He says it this way, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. Now again, if we had time, we could go back to John 14. And it's amazing because he talks about how I and the Father are one and I'm going to send you and you will no longer ask me, but anything you ask the Father in my name, he'll give to you. He talks about it again in the the story of 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 the vine and the vine dresser. He says, I'm going to come through, I'm going to prune you. He says, anything you will ask of me, I will give to you. Because he's telling them all the power that they've seen Jesus do, where he asked the Father. Do you remember when he fed 5,000? What did he do before he broke the food? Do you remember? He prayed and asked the Father. Jesus operated. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, could, he had total omnipotence, omnipotence, omnipresence. He voluntarily chose not to use those attributes so that he worked through the authority of the Father, I've come not to do my will but his, and the power of the Spirit. Why did he do that? Because what do you and I have access to? The Father and the power of the Spirit. So that you and I don't get to mope around and say, yeah, but I mean, that's nice, Jesus, but look what you could do. No, it is look what God can do. And he says, when I've resurrected, this is what your mindset should be. And so when he tells them, he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. The global rescue mission hasn't stopped, disciples. Get on mission. I didn't call you to drop your nets for three years. I called you to drop your nets for a lifetime. I have not rescued you just for the temporary. I've rescued for the eternal, and the eternal starts today. And so he says it comes with power and purpose and a plan. Secondarily, it illustrates what's going to happen in just a few weeks. Um, just to be honest with you, the Greek, the original Greek here is kind of uh, structured rough. And so translators usually try to smooth this out, and then they cause all kinds of problems for us. Because so, it says, when he had said this, he breathed on them. Uh, that phrase, on them, is not there. It literally means Jesus gave a great sigh. <sighs> That's what it means. And then what said, guys, receive the Spirit. When does this happen? Not for another uh, 33 days, day of Pentecost. He is foreshadowing what's going to happen. He's prophesying what's going to happen because he's telling them, I'm putting you on mission. And what's the first thing you're going to think when he's putting you on mission? Where's the power to do it? Remember when Jesus comes off the Mount of Transfiguration, there's a dad there. He's got a demon-possessed son who keeps throwing himself in the fire, keeps drowning himself, and then they, they try to cast the demon out and it doesn't come out. And Jesus said that's because this only comes out with prayer and fasting. He's really saying, guess what? It's not your power, but it's my power. I mean, how can I do this? I mean, how many times can you share the gospel with a friend and have them reject it and keep doing it? How many times can you try to heal relationships by confessing and repenting of your sin 
and the other person never seemed to get it. How many times can you be faithful and, and be in church and be in personal worship and not feel like you're growing too much and keep doing it? How many times can you go through seasons of fighting the same habitual sin? Hebrews 12. Listen, it is not our power. It's the power of Christ in us through the power of the Spirit. Uh, the story is told about a really wealthy man one time who was looking through an art catalog and he found a painting that he wanted. And so he sent, he had a, he had a guy, it's kind of his right-hand guy, his, his buyer. And he said, do you see this painting? The guy said, yeah. He said, go find this painting and spend whatever you want to spend. I want this painting. I want to hang it at my house. The guy says, okay. So he goes searching, searching, searching. Comes back three months later, says, I can find it nowhere it's probably hidden away somewhere in somebody's house. He says, I don't care. I don't, don't come back without this painting. The guy goes back, searches another six months, comes back, says, I, I can't find it anywhere. Don't return. A year later, the guy comes back. He says, I found it, and he'll never sell it. He says, you didn't hear me. I don't care if I have to empty bank accounts. I want that painting. The guy says, he will never, ever, ever sell. He said, go offer him twice what it's worth. He said, I'm telling you, he'll never sell. He said, listen, if you don't go and buy this painting for you, I'm going to fire you. And he said, I can't purchase it. You already own it. It's sitting in your warehouse. You forgot. Do I think the reality is lots of times we get apathetic in ministry because we've forgotten we already have the power of the Spirit? It's not our power. It's Christ's power in us, coming out of us. This is what he's telling them. But then he tells them the purpose of the mission. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is a clear reference to what he taught them before when he said that what's bound on earth is bound in heaven. And he's talking, frankly, in Matthew 18, in, this con- in that context, about the mission of the church. And so we can take this corporately. He's talking to a church. Oh, church, I can say this way, Kennerly Road, do not forget the mission we are on. There is nothing more vital than people being made right with Christ, the forgiveness of their sins. You can always tell when people begin to fade on mission in life. You can tell it, if we illustrate this way, in relational love. We don't think of what we can do to love someone. We don't think of what flowers we can give, what gifts, what trips we can take with them, what adventures we can experience together what past joys we can delight in, and what new ones we can create. Nope. We check the anniversary and birthday boxes. We roll our eyes when someone asks us for something. We sigh at having to serve somebody. We prioritize other things over these people. That's so true in our earthly relationships. I know if you've walked this earth for any amount of time, you've experienced this in some relationship in your life. Some friendship, some romantic relationship, some parenting or child relationship, some sibling relationship, some neighbor relationship. What happens in our love of Christ? Well, we don't prioritize him or his mission. How did Jesus respond to people that said, I want you, Jesus, but I don't want your mission? He said, let the dead bury the dead, come and follow me. You can't separate loving Jesus from loving his mission. You can't. It's impossible. And so how could I tell when Steve's heart would begin to grow apathetic toward it? Well, I don't prioritize him or his mission. Whether it's in the seemingly mundane of personal time in the word or prayer, whether it's prioritizing time with other believers in worship and in service, whether it's prioritizing sharing the gospel with others, I find other ways to fill my time, to consume my energy, to take my creativity, And in those things, I find my delight. We've forgotten the disciples in this moment are stymied because of grief. But they forgot that God put them on mission with the greatest truths that this world can know. We forget that neighbors and friends and spouses and children are watching us and learning from us about what is most important, what is most lovely, what I am most passionate about. 
We carry the answer to the darkness with the light of Christ and the solution to the perversity of our culture with the salt of the gospel. Being on mission, staying on mission, sacrificing for mission is the fruit of basking and being loved by the captain of my soul. Resurrection Sunday? It's a gift that proclaims the loveliness of Christ over everything. And then there's one last one, and it's with our dear friend Thomas. And so what about my struggles in life? What do I do with my doubts and my fears in life? Because I have them. And into that, we have this Thomas moment. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. We all come with our own sets of doubts, fears, and concerns, don't we? We all come with our own anxieties and pressures and stressors of life. Eight days later, and so this means it's actually the next next Sunday night, right? Uh, I thought about it. I was like, oh, it would be so cool to preach this that Sunday night. But here we go. His disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them, and although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. So we have repeat, (laughs) right? Peace be with you, shalom. And then he turns his attention right to Thomas. I love this because this reminds me, John's gospel is the most personal of all the gospels, right? You got the woman at the well, you got the centurion. It's just personalized. And here we have this personalized moment. He looks right at Thomas. Put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, which is to equate Jesus with the Father when he makes this statement. And so Thomas is putting the puzzle pieces together. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know, we're stepping away from Job this morning. But boy, sufferings are still in our minds, aren't they? <laughs> uh, been too many jokes for, at my expense this week of preaching through Job and then I break my toe. But there's lots of sorrows. And, and frankly... My broke toe pales in comparison to the sorrows and griefs of the people that sit in front of me this morning. I know this. Life with its sorrows can blind us to the love and power of Christ. Thomas doesn't trust the emotions. He doesn't trust the claims or the testimony of his friends. It isn't enough for him. The loss that Thomas has experienced is personal and deep, and his sorrow is profound. Following Jesus being consumed by his great love and forgiveness, being sent on mission, it all seemed so attractive at the start. Do you remember how excited you were when Christ called you to himself? Maybe you've been saved long enough to have experienced watching someone be new in Christ and they're excited, enthusiastic. And I wonder if you've thought in a jaded way, just give them time. The shine will wear off. Oh, saints, it ought not be. But life kicks in. We sorrow and suffer. We go so excited to tell someone else about Jesus and then we get rejected. We go through seasons where it seems like nothing is going right. I get it. We get blinded by life. I remember one young man coming to me years and years ago when I was doing camping ministry, and he said, Steve, I keep struggling with the same sin struggles, same temptations every day, and I don't get it. For the last month, all I've I've gotten up every morning, I've read my Bible, I've prayed, I've shared the gospel with campers, and I still keep failing. All he was expressing is what so many Christians often think. If I do one plus one, it should equal two. And unfortunately, as you mature and you grow in Christ, you begin to realize that Jesus is not the cosmic slot machine you thought he was. Where you put in, you pull the handle, bingo, you win. But rather, it's an ongoing, lifelong relationship. But frequently, we get blinded by life. Thomas is. And into this, there's blessing love. Now, I want to show it to you from Peter. Now, Peter's here in this moment. And Peter's a great great resource. Peter knows that the sorrows of life, that the struggles against sin, the experiences of rejection can do a real number on us. In fact, Peter's first epistle is all about hope in the face of sorrow. And so he knows for Christians, life can get very hard and grief can overwhelm us and difficulties can overwhelm us. We can get so busy with life that we can just get fatigued. 
And that when we get fatigued, guess what? Our heart grows cold. The temporary delights of this world can seem more lovely to us. I mean, who among us hasn't experienced knowing that, that we've had a very long day, a long week, a long month, frankly, a long year, and what my heart needs is just a, a few minutes, some time with Jesus, some time worshiping in song or reading his word, but instead I just want to play another video game, watch another different music video, watch a TV show, get some answers right on Jeopardy, watch a new Marvel movie and go to bed. All good things. But all things intended to distract my heart from what it really needs. Because I'm just consumed by life. Peter knows this. And so he writes to believers that are going through hard times in 1 Peter. And I think it's shocking because what Peter goes back to is actually this moment with Thomas. And he talks to believers like you and I. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We love Jesus because we've never seen him, but we have tasted belief. He has moved our hearts. He has broken through our stubbornness, and he has called us to himself. Jesus chose us and rescued us despite of us. We are surrounded by a world of unbelief. We are surrounded by rejection. We've been brought by his life, by, bought by his life, his death, and won by his resurrection. Tell me, let, tell me this, who has loved you more than Jesus? Tell me, what thing has so satisfied your soul like Jesus? Show me what experience has rivaled being rescued by Christ. I argue there's nothing. I love when the disciples looked at Jesus and said, where would we go? You alone have the words of life. May God bring us so to the end of all enjoyments of life that would seem to threaten His glory. Thomas Chalmers wrote a lecture. It's not even quite a sermon, but it was a, kind of an expose on 1 John about the love of the world to believers. It's called expulsive love. But in that, he said, there's two kinds of love of Christ. There's a desire love and there's a satisfied love. The desire love is a longing for something not yet obtained. It's that passionate pursuit of someone that isn't yours yet. I remember being in pursuit phase with my wife. Man, it's like I've never hunted, but I was a hunter, right? Like I was on mission. I'm like driving 45 minutes one way to buy half-dead flowers from Walmart, Right? I'm like planning dates. Um, we, we were dating for about a month and a half, and one time, it was a glorious moment, driving back from Green Bay, Wisconsin, she looked at me, she said, I just don't think I feel about you the way you feel about me. I'm just being that honest with you. And I'm like, hmm, that hurt. Like, that, that, don't, that don't hurt. And I was like, well, I don't know what Jesus wants, but I, but I like you that way, and if it doesn't creep you out, I'd love to keep taking you out. She's like, okay. I'm like, ha <laughs> ha. And lo, what the Lord hath done, right? <laughs> the desire love is the pursuit of someone or something. Maybe there's a thing. Maybe there's something and in, in, in good stewardship you're saving up for it, right? And you're checking your bank account, wanting to see, is the money there yet? Have, have you saved enough to get it? There's this desire of chasing after. Maybe you're saving up for a ring. Maybe it's a love of longing. Maybe you're longing for it. Maybe you've already got, you already know your vacation days this summer because you're like, I cannot wait. I got to sit on the beach with a cup of lemonade and a book. Watch the waves roll in. Or maybe you're not, maybe you're a doer, right? I can't wait to ride that roller coaster. I don't care what it is, but you've got something you're just longing for. And Chalmers helps because he helps me to think this way. What is the desirable things that I'm looking for in, D in Jesus? You know what Jesus said? He said he's preparing a home for me. My wife was expecting her children. With each one of them, there was the preparation of the nursery. Just for them. Now, some people, they like to do the whole surprise thing. I mean, there's generations ahead of us. You didn't know what you were having. We are some planning OCD people. We wanted to know, right? So, like, we had the pink going on for one. We got the blue going on for the other. We do our thing. I wonder what home Christ is preparing for me. I look forward to the day when he will welcome me home and he will say, you did a good job, enter in. 
I look forward to the day when even cups of water given in his name will be rewarded. And what that makes me want to do is not be satisfied with cups of water, but give out buckets of water. I look forward to the day when he says he will come back for me. He speaks my name to his father. And when Satan dares to utter my name, Jesus tells him, shut up, he's mine. And he silences the accuser. Jesus has a plan, a purpose, a use for the gifts he has given me. He is eager to wipe my tears, to see me overwhelmed in his presence, and to say, welcome home. There is a love of longing. All that is mine, because having not yet seen, I believe in the resurrected Jesus. Do you? Do you desire love, Jesus? But it's not just that. There's also a love of indulgence or a satisfied love. It's a delighting in the current gifts and loveliness of Jesus. In the presence of someone we love so dearly and we just celebrate being with them. The, the picture of this is my son and I doing 70 miles an hour with the top down on a Mustang, music cranking, sunglasses on, singing to the top of our lungs, man. We just were loving life. It was a moment, Right? It's waking up and going out on the front porch of a, of a vacation cabin and the birds are chirping and the, and, and the elk are wandering through, right? And it's just time. And it's like, this is an amazing world that God has made. It, there is a satisfied love where you delight in the here and the now. But I want to call you to not just to delight in the gifts of the giver, but in the giver of the gifts. I've shut down restaurants staying too late with friends because we're just enjoying time together. My heart can't help but singing as loud as I can next to Darren last Sunday as we celebrated communion. Once every other month, I get to stand next to my friend, my pastor, my brother in Christ, and we sing out. He's a much better singer than I am, but I love it because we're worshiping and it's true and it's real. There's a delight in being with other believers and celebrating Jesus. I'm not the only one he's saved. I'm surrounded by people just like me. Unworthy, broken, but rescued and safe in Him. My soul delights to be with other believers here at Easter, but also on normal days, because guess what? I've learned I need Jesus every day. My soul thrills at signs of His grace. My soul shouts, I am His and his, He is mine. And as this broken vessel gets to say this morning, He is risen, He is risen indeed. It's not that we love Jesus too little. It's that we love other things Something, someone, too much. Don't tell me you love Jesus. Show me. He did. From preparing the disciples for just these three days, he showed his love. From the cross, forgive them, he showed his love. From the words of shalom and peace, he showed his love. From the patience of reminding them of mission, from the return just for those of us who have not yet seen, yet we believe, he showed his love. He didn't just say it. Don't tell me. Don't tell me you love Jesus. Show me. Show me through a zealous, sacrificial, prioritizing pursuit of him. Because your heart is so full of awe of his love for you that you can't help but to love him more than everything else. Resurrection Sunday is a gift that proclaims the loveliness of Christ over everything. If I had a glass bottle here this morning, it was corked, and I were to ask, and out all the science equipment in the world, and I were to ask, how do I get all the air out of the bottle? What would I do? Well, scientists among us would know, I've got to put a tube in it, run it to a vacuum, and I've got to create a vacuum in it. And you can actually remove all the air out of that tube. Children already know this. They take plastic soda bottles all the time, right? And you suck all the air out, and the air pressure on the outside is greater than the air pressure on the inside, and it collapses the bottle, right? Isn't that the easiest way to get all the air out? No. The easiest way would just be fill it with water. What do I do when my heart seems filled with the love of other things? The easiest way to deal, deal with it is to fill my heart with the love of Christ. And it will push the love of everything else out. So I could sit here this morning and try to prove to you that Jesus is better than everything. And so it's my prayer this week that God would show you this morning, remind you, oh saint, if you're here this morning, know Christ, and you here this morning, if you don't know Christ, that Jesus is better than everything, look to the resurrected Christ who has proclaimed and shown his love for you and be in awe of him 
and let your hearts be filled with the love of Christ alone. Father, we thank you for your patient dealing with us. We thank you for how Jesus comes to the disciples, not out of irritation or anger, but kindly, lovingly, speaking truth. And Father, we ask that you would do that same work in our hearts. Father, help us this week for Easter Sunday to not just be another day, another event, a box that we check off, but rather a renewal moment. Father, we, we would dare say even a revival moment. Lord, let us remember that two years ago we were told we can't meet and how our hearts ached. Father, restore within us an ache to be with the saints and to worship our Savior. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.